This is the DLR Cast, the essential podcast for fans of Diamond David Lee Roth. All right, here we are once again at the DLR Cast. Hey, Happy New Year. Hello, Darren, my partner in crime here at the only and poss- quite possibly number one podcast devoted to Diamond David Lee Roth. What's happening, my friend? Steve, uh, before I tell you Happy New Year and send well wishes, I think we are still the number one David Lee Roth podcast in the world. If if we are wrong about this, we need a correction because there's no fake news here. But happy damn New Year. Many people say this is the best DLR cast ever. <laughs> many, people, many people have told me this. Uh, many people. It's an, ama- it's an amazing thing. It really is. It's amazing. It's amazing. Nope talks more about david lee roth than we do no one knows more than than we do okay we you know what we're doing impression of uh <laughs> but the bottom line is happy new year good to connect yeah 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 it's our first well it's our we're recording the first episode of 2021 and this is episode 21 so there you go and uh who do we got uh, who do we got coming up in the old interview slot i know it's a good one this is Stacy Jones. I know you're a fan of his band American Hi-Fi, but yes, thing Stacy Jones for American Hi-Fi, that's like one of 20 credits for that guy. Like, I think he's still in Matchbox 20 as the drummer. I think he's still Miley Cyrus's music director. He's got his own company, Hi-Fi Labs. I'm I'm guessing you were a fan of him in Veruca Salt and Letters to Cleo. Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and then I've just. Uh, Big, big fan of American Hi-Fi because they totally cover my Power Pop Jones. Great hooks, big guitars. I just and I know they worked a lot with Butch Walker, who I absolutely just love everything Butch Walker is involved in. So it's a great big Stacy Jones-esque universe for me there. <laughs> but it actually there's a lot of connections to David Lee Roth besides him being a Van Halen and David Lee Roth fan. For example, he did two or three records with Bob Rock, who did the 91 Roth album, A Lil Ain't Enough. Uh, as it's talked about in this interview, Stacy took drum lessons from Greg Bissonette. So uh, I don't know what that term is. Do we just say if we pretend like this is LinkedIn and we say he's a second degree connection? I guess so. I mean, I was just thinking it's it's I mean, at least every episode somehow is linked back to Greg Bissonette, it seems of late. So and for those who are new to the podcast, of course, you can go here. Uh, a couple ep- what is it it's uh episode 15 actually of the dlr cast where you had the pleasure of talking with both greg and his brother matt bissonette of course they're the rhythm section from a little ain't enough but i digress but if you're new check us out and follow the previous ep- check out the previous episodes and one thing that i gotta say about this interview is we get a really good motley Crue story in there because stacy wrote and motley crew related track and we kind of get the real story on that and let's face it there there's a good amount of overlap to motley crew fans from the shout of the devil era as the classic diamond dave van halen era am i i'm not talking out of school there right no absolutely because i mean i remember in my art class in around 1983 84 out at riverhead high school i had one guy doing the back of it next to me in my art class my one buddy was doing the back of his levi's jean jacket with the van halen logo and my other guy, my other buddy across across three tables away was doing the back of his Lee jean jacket with oh. a big shout at the devil pent, pentagram star thing. So it was uh, there was definitely some overlap there. Nothing but yeah, as the <laughs> great DLR would say. But 
I I want to pick your brain about something. I'm putting you on the spot here. All right. My wife generously bought me a surprise gift a couple days ago. She bought me that special edition Life magazine Van Halen issue, which I don't know if that's on newsstands. If you ever, it's to- on newsstands. I've seen it everywhere. I mean, this is the cashing in on uh, you know Eddie Van Halen, at, uh, sadly uh, passing away back in October. Now, there, I'm going to say it's 85% awesome. There's a lot of photos that maybe you haven't seen before. Great Chuck Klosterman essay in there. But there's some things in there that did not read correct to me. And I want to see if you agree with these assessments. All right. Put me on the spot here. Hit me. Okay. The first thing, it said on page 48 that Michael Anthony signed away his album sales royalties to 1984. My understanding was he signed away the publishing. That's what I thought, too. But was it just 84? Was it for all the catalog? Because there was some uh, there was a lot of hinky stuff went on and some caveats there, which Mike, being the class act he has, has not really talked about in a big, big way that I know of. But, yeah, I'm not sure 100 percent. I think you're right. And I think this is the culprit of people not understanding publishing and what it is compared to just recordings. This is the real inside baseball nerdy kind of stuff. Like people hearing the term copyrights and not knowing the difference between the album sales royalties and the, you know, the composition and all that, because Van Halen was splitting everything across the board, 25% each until this kind of rift happened. And it's my understanding, like, what artist under a record deal would go, yeah, I'm waiving all my royalties because he did play on the album. I just think that they're mistaken and it's the publishing. Well, wasn't that some – we'll have to go back and no doubt someone might uh, – uh, if you follow us or you're checking this out or you run to Twitter at the DLR cast, well, tweet, mm-hmm. us a, tweet at us the correct information because we are definitely not infallible. And as Darren well knows, sometimes I think I've got – early onset dementia with my memory however if i recall uh and let's face it there's so much information coming at us from all sides here but there was some um, michael had to give up a bunch of things to be a part of that ill-fated reunion with sammy tour in 2004 was is that what they're referring to they mentioned that later on but they specifically say 84 so okay whether or not that wait one. a minute. Wait a minute. You know what? We'll have to go back and research this because I vaguely remember something about this in Noel Monk's book. But this I, might be correct. I don't think it's you signed away the album rights. I think he signed away the publishing. And that's why we see a lot of the amended credits that don't have his name. I think the movie yeah. were bad. I think you're right because no one's going to sign away their what they're getting in royalties on album sales. Yeah, he would still be under. Which the could point. be less actually than your publishing. So who the hell knows? Definitely less the way that uh, the monkey points go, as they claim. But this one is definitely wrong. It's said that they parted ways with Gary Sharon after the tour. That is not true from what I remember because didn't they start making a second album with Sharon that uh, Danny Karchmer uh, – Cor- how do you say his name? Korchmar? Korchmar. You're better. I think. You're better man than I. Uh, and I interviewed him like six months ago, and I can't even say his name. Uh, they started a second album with him and another producer, right? Boy, I thought they were writing. I don't know if any. they actually spent any time in the studio cutting tracks. Demos, I've read that they did do. 
Okay, but nothing like towards what what could be of quality enough recording-wise to end up on an album. Sharon described and named songs. Like he, there's been a couple interviews with him that have gone around where he actually named what songs were from that. So I just think that they're wrong and they were kind of just summarizing it. A li- they were making it a little too concise about Gary's Could be. There's no mention of Mitch Malloy in this book. There's no mention of Patty Smythe. There's no mention of the Twister soundtrack, which weren't those the last two things that they did before Hagar left after the balance touring and all that? I believe you're right. And that was, was that after the two songs and the two new songs from Sammy on the greatest hits. I can't remember the timeline on that. I thought, and, and we had talked about this on a previous DLR cast. Cause I always go back to one of my favorite Van Halen songs is humans being, Ditto. which I, which, which Sammy was, was he really unhappy about having to write, you know, songs for a soundtrack? I think that, right. I mean, does that ring a bell too? That part I didn't heard. I, my friend Joe once told me a story I can attribute to where it is that supposedly the song that Eddie and Alex were doing for the Twister soundtrack was supposed to be like Van Halen's Stairway to Heaven. And it just at a certain point, they lost the plot. And it's like, yeah, here's a throwaway instrumental jam. When you when you think of, of it, and as usual, we go down some different avenues here. That 96 ill-fated reunion with Dave Mm -hmm. on the MTV award stage, 96 to about 2004. That is like the darkest, cloudiest time period for Van Halen. Right. I mean, yeah, there was definitely some addiction issues there. Yeah. Uh, I'm trying to think back. I remember reading something recently that when Eddie was first diagnosed with cancer and I was like, oh, wow, that's even earlier than I thought it was. So maybe there was something in there. I mean, I know, he, you know, he had hip surgery, I think it was. I mean, Sharon's in and out. That's like a really dark period. And then you don't hear anything. And then all of a sudden, 2007, they're back with Dave and Wolfie's in the band. It's like that's like the third chapter, right? That's or fourth chapter, whatever, where it's it was smooth sailing from what we all saw with new music and three tours from 2007 to 2000 uh i mean uh 20 what 17 or six somewhere around there so i mean but that time period there whenever we talk about this stuff it's hazy for me because i mean at that point i was so really invested in whatever dave was doing and he wasn't doing too much you had the dlr band in 98 right and you had that the covers album that came out after that sometime and the no holds barbecue. So I mean, he wasn't exactly hugely active. So I mean, that whole almost a decade time period is just a hazy, dark kind of like, what the hell was going on here with Van Halen time period? And then one other thing that I took issue with, putting aside that they don't talk at all about Dave's solo career and his contributions, they they kind of cut Dave free in this time life thing between. 85 and him coming i guess they mentioned the two songs on the grace hits in 96 but then they don't really say anything until really the 0708 regrouping and all that but there's so there's nothing about sammy and dave's tour in there i guess if you're going to focus on eddie sure i think that it's an instrumental thing with that whole process but they i don't love this narrative that everyone has that Dave was fired because he was going to make the movie and it's a solo thing. And that when he asked Eddie to score his movie, that that was the final straw and that was over because Eddie scored the movie, the wildlife and he scored a TV movie for Valerie Bernelli 
called The Seduction of Gina. I think that's the name of it. So this whole narrative that like, oh, no one can do anything solo. He scored two movies. Yeah. But also, too, I mean, was Dave – did Dave walk or was Dave fired? You know? Sure. Either way, this this Life magazine kind of thing, it looks cool. Um, There's not a lot of photos that you saw all the time. There's a lot of stuff from 1978 in Europe. I don't know if they just bought somebody's archive for they licensed just one archive, but there's a lot of cool 1978, 1979 stuff. And then uh, like you see the, the few photos of them roller skating, but I never saw them roller skating in Japan before. Did you ever see that? no but i have seen the roller skating stuff yeah but not in japan so unless it was just an alternate photo so it's well done uh does it have a price tag here there's no price tag i'm not judging how much my wife spends (laughs) uh (laughs) it's the thought that counts darren But the bottom line is, I, I just say, if you're going to throw together a tribute like this, just make sure your facts are right. And don't disparage Gary Sharon that much. I mean, leave Gary alone. I do want to get it. I knew Chuck Klosterman wrote something, and I like his writing. So yeah. and I know he's a big Van Halen fan. So that, to me, would be worth the price of admission. His essay is pretty good. He talks – I'm not going to say what it is, but he talks about his favorite Van Halen songs. Like he makes a playlist, and he justifies why each is each. And there's – one writer's uh, take in there, I can't remember their name offhand, which is actually a refreshing look into Eddie's genius. But if you were buying this to learn about things that you didn't know, eh, not, not, not so much. You and I, the, the savants, we, we know all of it. You know, the, the part about Eddie liked the microwaved hot dogs, like we knew about that. Sometimes the minutiae I can't keep up with, you know, I mean, I'm yeah. more concerned most of the time i think on the music and the more music related minutia on that end we want to thank i can't remember who it was but somebody corrected us at twitter about the song mississippi power as far as the release of that now i just completely spaced on what the damn tweet said see there we go i mean 15 minutes on this intro or so you know i'm already getting a memory lapse see this is what i'm talking about folks i apologize well, the bottom line is I uh, really appreciate everyone who takes the time to listen to the show. And when you do a podcast, you're kind of in a vacuum. You never know, like, do people actually care about this? But every week, it's just more people are grasping onto this. And the more years, you're kind of sad that there wasn't already a podcast about David Lee Roth out there. Yeah. And you know what? You've got a good story about David Van Halen. Tweet us at, at the DLR cast, and uh, we'd love to chat with you about it because – that's one of the reasons why we do this podcast, is that for all that we know, there's so much that we don't know, and yeah. or there's so much that we think, and we brought this up in the other interview. I mean, this is part of the reason, one of the biggest reasons why we started this podcast. And remember, this started months before Eddie died, of course, and there were always going to have some Van Halen element to this. But, you know, you and I really talked about this and kind of came up with the idea that Dave Solo stuff isn't really recognized that much anymore. I mean, people pretty much go, oh, yeah, Eat Him and Smile blew me away. And then there was Skyscraper. It's like, hold on, wait a minute. <laughs> I'm, I'm, not, I'm not saying that uh, Filthy Little Mouth is the equivalent of Abbey Road here, but there's some <laughs> good stuff on there. You know what I mean? It's like I still want to know what he's you know, what he's doing creatively anyway, even if it's not music, as we've seen with the paintings. Right. I mean, the illustrations that he's been pretty uh, that keeps coming out very regularly on that end of things you know what would be really cool i would love to see all those illustrations 
be a part of some sort of uh, big coffee table book. I'm with you there. Well, I guess we'll have to start a campaign to tweet at him while tweeting <laughs> show account in there so we know that Dave knows about the show while knowing that he has to make this merchandise. So, <laughs> so everyone needs to get on that one. For the Stacey Jones fans, thank you for listening to this much uh, talk about non-Stacey Jones stuff before you get to hear Stacey Jones talk. And man, one of the nicest guys you'll ever, ever, ever hear speak that you could ever interview. So we go a little inside baseball. So thanks for tolerating that. Indeed. Very cool. Thanks a lot. Hey, Stacey, right on time. Can you hear me okay? Yo! Hey, thanks so much for doing this. This is a, my oh. third Stacy Jones interview, and like life just keeps getting better. Am I right? <laughs> I don't know about that. <laughs> nice to see you, Darren. How are you? Great. And yourself there, aside from the world blowing up? Yeah, you know, we're doing all right, man. Yeah. You know? Exactly. So put, putting together all the pieces here, when I look at your musical chronological discography, chronology, whatever we want to call it here, I know that your first touring gig was with a reggae band and yeah. that has nothing to do with Atwater punks. That has nothing to do with your Berkeley music training. That has nothing to do with American hi-fi, which was kind of like a power pop punk pop kind of thing. That has nothing to do with matchbox 20 Miley Cyrus, et cetera. Yeah. But what I kind of get is that you are rooted in the Van Halen Motley Crue school of music. And that's where it started. Do I have a that million right? Percent. A million percent. Yeah. I was definitely, um, so in, yeah, so like junior high and high school, I was told, I was a total metalhead. Um, so that was like the pop metal stuff, like Van Halen, Motley Crue, Rat, Dokken, like I love that stuff. Um, but I also loved like Maiden, um, Metallica, that world. Um, but, but then also I was really into like, U2, NXS, you know, that's, that sort of stuff as well. So, I mean, you know, I, I grew up in a family that listened to a ton of music as mm -hmm. a kid. So, you know, I've always been open to everything. Like my dad loved, you know, Miles Davis, but also the Beatles and the Stones and the Eagles. And, and you know, the first concert I ever saw was ABBA, you know, so like I've, yeah, like I, I, I've always had an open mind when it came to music. I, if it's good and if it resonates with me, then I'm all in. But I find that there's, there's two different Stacey Joneses. The, the Stacey Jones that does music is generally serious. There's not, like, yeah, Flavor of the Week is funny in a way, but yeah. it's very serious otherwise in, in your discography. But then everyone I know who knows you or who's encountering you goes, oh, man, that guy is funny. And <laughs> I don't know and, about that. Well, Mark Stepro, et cetera, they all think okay, you're funny. Okay. They all like you. And that's, that's awesome. to be a compliment. And when I've spoken with you at different times beyond interviews, which you don't have to remember, that's okay. There's always been kind of like a DLR humor kind of thing. There's been good one-liners and all that. So all right, now, you're, now you're putting me on the spot to be funny. Now I don't know what to do. That, well, that's not the plan here. The plan is to point out that have you had to intentionally restrain the humor from the music or no. does that not even come up? I hate comedy in music. Wow. So like, 
I'm not a Zappa fan. Like I appreciate Zappa and those musicians. Like I think that's, you know, it's, it's insane what they do. I don't like it. It doesn't resonate with me. I don't like Tenacious D. Um, I don't like, I don't love, like, I don't love musicals. Like, you know what I mean? Like, I like to go, I like to go see a musical. If I'm in the, in the theater, I love it. But like, I'm not someone that puts on really theatrical stuff. And so I, th those are the two sides of music that, that don't resonate with me is like comedy and like really ultra theatrical stuff doesn't. And, and like, and that, that goes true. That's true for like metal too. Like, I don't like those bands that are really technical and, and kind of theatrical, like dream theater and that kind of stuff. Again, total respect for their musicianship just doesn't resonate with me. But you do love Hot for Teacher. And let's face it, that's a funny song. That's incredible. I mean, who doesn't, who doesn't? I, it's so funny because this morning, you know, I just pulled up Spotify and was just listening to Van Halen prior to talking to you. And like, one of the things that I realized was that, you know, I was more of a Tommy Lee guy. Like Tommy Lee was my favorite drummer from that, from that world. I just, there was something about his playing that like really, again, resonated with me and spoke to me. I love like, I love his power. I love his parts. I love the grease that he has. You know, he has that bottomy kind of thing going, really heavy foot. Um, but Alex is one of those drummers that I always admired and loved. And like, one of the things that, that you can say about Alex is like, as soon as you hear that snare drum, you know it's him, you know? And so for a drummer to be able to like have a sound that is like identifiable within the first four bars, you know, of the song is pretty remarkable. You know, that's, that's not everybody gets to do that. Um, and it's interesting, like as I was lis listening through to some of this stuff, one of the reasons I think I gravitated more towards Tommy when I was a kid was also I understood him more. Like, there's so many things that Van Halen does rhythmically. Like, one of the things I think I just discovered is, like, they do every pre-chorus, not every, but lots of their pre-choruses leading into the chorus. They, Alex does this weird beat displacement shit, and it stays in 4-4. And, but, like, you know, if, like, you listen to, like, Panama or I think Unchained, they do it. Even Jump, I think he does a small little thing. But he always does these little things in the pre-chorus where you kind of, like, you're like, wait, what's going on? And then the chorus lands and he just lays it in there. And it's like incredible. It's like that, it's that like release, you know, it's like that tension and release, right? And I, 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 I think that's so incredible. And as a kid, a lot of times I didn't know what the fuck they were doing. You know what I mean? And I didn't like take the time to like slow the record down and learn everything note for note because I was too lazy, quite frankly. <laughs> so I was just kind of like, shout at the devil. I could, you know, yeah. I could just bang away with my headphones on and not have to think about it quite as much. One of the things that David Lee Roth has started to say a lot in the past few years is that Van Halen put the rumba in rock and roll. And yeah. he usually says that when he's playing Jamie's Crying. And I was thinking about that and it's true, but do you think that they noticed it at the time or do you think he just heard it a thousand times and went, hey, that is kind of different? Yeah, I don't know. That's a, that's a great question. I mean, you know, as somebody that's been in a band and been a musician my whole life, like I, I kind of know what it's like when you're in the room with other guys like crafting a song, you know? And, and so are, are those moments intentional where they're like, hey, in this pre-chorus, let's, <laughs> 
let's fuck them up going in going into the chorus like let's right. get weird you know like did they make that was that a conscious decision or was it just like what happened like eddie started playing this thing and alex just went with it you know the two of them rhythmically is such an interesting and totally unique uh thing in music you know yeah. and i think like them being brothers probably has a lot to do with it and uh and they both just like i mean two two guys that just completely carved out their own you know niche which i think is incredible you know well an interesting thing to me about your career is a lot of the people that have been referenced or related stuff we've re referenced you've worked with i I don't know if it's true. You you could just like give me a nod if it's not true that you played on that Motley Crue compilation in 04 or 05 or you somehow contributed to that. Okay. I wrote I wrote a song with Nikki for the Red White and Crue box set. Okay. And what happened was I think so Bob Rock was producing some new a couple of new songs and Bob Rock had just done the first American Hi-Fi record. Yes. And I think Nikki and Bob were hanging out and Bob was playing him some of the hi-fi record and Nikki was like, oh, this is cool, you know? And Bob's like, you should call Stacy to write a song. So I get a phone call from, from Nikki Six, like out of the blue. And I was like, uh, like, is this real? Like, what's happening right now? And, you know, it was, he was basically like, hey, you know, I, I, I got your number from Bob. We're gonna, we wanna write some new songs for this box set. So. I'll try to make, make, I'll do a truncated version of this story, but basically Nikki came to the studio. We spent a couple, you know, two or three sessions writing this song and uh, we demoed it. And so Nikki came to, to my studio and demoed it. I played drums, Jamie from Hi-Fi played guitar, Nikki mm -hmm. played bass, and then I sang the vocal, right? And, and then it just kind of like disappeared. And then, you know, I saw Nikki here and there at shows or whatever. Um, and then one day, we were in the studio, actually. I think Hi-Fi was in the studio at Sunset Sound. Mm -hmm. making. Might have been when we were making our second album or maybe we were doing a one-off thing. But again, phone rings, it's Nikki. And he's like, hey, we're recording that song today and Vince is not around. Can you come sing the vocal while, while Tommy and I cut basics you know, for the song? We need like a guide vocal, you know? So I was like, Hell yeah. So Jamie actually came with it. He's like, I'm going with you, dude. <laughs> so, so we went down to cello or whatever, wherever it was. And, and so Tommy and Nikki were there. DJ Ashba was playing guitar because Mick had just had like a hip surgery or something. So, so I stood in the vocal booth while they recorded this song. And, and like, it was incredible. So I got to sing with them. And then at one point, Tommy stopped and he's like, he's like, Hey, Bob, Bob. He's like, I keep fucking up going into the bridge. He's like, can you play the demo back? He's like, I want to learn that fill that Stace played going into the bridge. And I was just like, <laughs> like my head exploded. First of all, he called me Stace. Secondly, here's Tommy Lee learning one of my drum parts, you know, when I like have made a career from learning his. Yeah. You know? So, um, so anyway, so yeah, so the song ended up on the box set, except it didn't make it on the US pressing because they didn't like the mix. So they had to remix it. And then it went on the box set for like the worldwide version. So it's kind of like an exclusive track out there. That definitely confuses a music publisher with your contract fulfillment deal for MDRC to get yeah, really nerdy okay. on you. But, yeah. <laughs> but Bob Rock, who we've now said the name of 12 times, yeah. 
you've played on two or three different albums that he's produced, but he produced Dave's 1991 album, A Little Ain't Enough. Did you ever press him for a Dave Lee Roth story or two? I didn't even know that he produced that. Oh. Uh, I'm going to have to go back and listen to that now. It's, um, some people love the album, some people don't, but the music video for A Little Ain't Enough, I don't know if Dave has made a better music video than that one. I can't remember. I'm going to have to, I'll, I'll go look at it after. It's, you know, it's funny, all the records that Bob has done that like people, like I don't, I, I didn't know. Well, the first time I went to his studio, he has, he has a loft in his studio. And so I went up in the loft and there's like all these guitars and stuff. And there's literally like, a hundred not a hundred there's probably 50 gold and platinum plaques you know records they're yeah. on the ground they're dusty they're, the glass is cracked they're like you know one of them like the record was like had the gold record had like peeled back you know from the inside you know what i mean they were just like in disarray and i was just like how many fucking albums have you made in your life like it's incredible all this stuff that you know you just you don't necessarily know, and they're and they're huge albums. Yeah. You know, people know him for Metallica, Motley Crue, Bon Jovi did a little bit, but like you know, Bob also does has had some huge hits with Michael Bublé. You know, like the Canadian connection. Uh, yeah. I tell you, the Canadian music industry we're so out of the loop on, and there's all these artists that are 15 times Canadian platinum, and they've never toured the states, and we kind of we lose track. Like the Tragically Hip. One of the biggest bands yeah. ever in Canada, and who? Yep. I have an Alex Van Halen story because of a Canadian band, Our Lady Peace. Okay, so, so before you tell me that, yeah. everyone in the world seems to like Stacey Jones and Rain from Our Lady Peace. These are the oh. two names that you don't ever hear like, oh man, and he threw a tantrum, and I just won't work with that guy again. Oh, I've, I've thrown some tantrums. <laughs> oh, yeah. Is the Our Lady Peace story uh, related to Rain, or...? Well, no. So it's related. So Jeremy, the drummer of Our Lady Peace, is, is still to this day a great friend of mine. Our Lady Peace, their first U.S. tour was, was they were first on a bill that Sponge, the band Sponge was headlining. Ned's Atomic Dustbin was right before Sponge. Letters to Cleo was before Ned's and Our Lady Peace opened for us. So that was a bill in like record. Yeah. Yeah. And they, nobody knew our OLP yet. You know, they hadn't broken yet. They, hadn't, they weren't on the radio yet. I think they started getting radio play during that tour. But um, so yeah, that was in 93. So Jeremy and I have been friends ever since. He moved to LA for a while. And, uh, you know, so we're buddies. I mean, he was literally, I was texting with him yesterday. Um, so I don't remember what band I was in at the time, but I had a day off in New York. And Our Lady Peace was opening for Van Halen at Jones Beach. So Jeremy hit me up and was like, hey, do you want to come to the show? And I was like, fuck yeah, of course I do. And I had never seen Van Halen prior to that. Like as a kid, I saw Motley Crue a bunch. I saw all the other bands we mentioned, you know, Rat and- Rough and, Cut, I know you're a Rough Cut guy. Rough Cut, I saw Rough Cut <laughs> open for somebody. I can't remember who, like maybe Dio. Probably, um, yeah. And, but I had never seen Van Halen. So I was like, yeah, I'm, I'm all in, you know? And not only was I gonna get to see them, but probably go backstage and whatever. So, um, so here's how I remember the story. Maybe we'll have to, we'll have, you'll have to cross-reference this with Jeremy and see how he remembers it. Okay. Um, but, uh, oh, sorry, my phone's blowing up. Hang no on. problem. 
I haven't interviewed Jeremy yet, but uh, their publicist is a Long Island person, so you never know what's going to happen. Dude, you should, I'll connect, you should t totally interview him for, for this. Because he, he, you want to talk about funny? That, yeah. he's the, one of the funniest dudes I know, and he's got, he probably has a million Alex Van Halen stories. You got to, I'll connect you guys. Oh, awesome. Okay, so I've interrupted you, and by the way, you didn't get it to take a sip of your tea, because I keep oh, okay. no, it's, This is my so third cup of break. This is my third cup. I'm, I'm, I don't need any more. All right, one more. Mm. So, so, so to recap, you go to the Jones Beach show there on Long Island because everything comes back to Long Island, Van Halen, and Absolutely. being a nice guy. Yes. So we go to, we go to, uh, we go to the show. Uh, we're hanging out at Soundcheck. And so I'm just sitting on a road case next to Alex's kit while he's like noodling around, right? Eddie comes out, starts noodling around. Jeremy and I both wear glasses and we both had like these kind of big, you know, like this kind of thing, right? Yeah. Big, big giant glasses. So, uh, so Eddie's tech walks over to us and is like, Hey, if you're gonna, if you're gonna watch soundcheck, Eddie says you have to wear this. And he like put like white tape on our glasses, like revenge of the nerds style. And so I was like, all right, they're already fucking with me already. I've only been here for five minutes. Yeah. So, Anyway, they could have been like nicer dudes and like they were they were sound checking uh, DLR never I don't I don't think he came out. Actually, wait, this would have been Sammy, right? If it's 93, it's Sammy. This would have been Sammy. So yeah. Sammy didn't come out. It was just a band. And like, you know, they were just playing tunes and Eddie would just come over and like stop playing and like ask me questions. <laughs> like I literally was just sitting on a road case like talking to Eddie Van Halen during sound check. So after sound check, we were we went back behind the kit with with Jeremy and we were talking with Alex, and and Jeremy's like, hey, tell him the tell him the story about the when you caught on fire, and Alex was like, oh yeah, man. So apparently, and again, you're gonna have to cross reference this with Jeremy. This was a long time ago. Yeah, <laughs> and I may have had a couple Bud Lights during sound check. Sure. So this is how I remember. It. Alex, you know, we all know he used to reach down, pick up the, the thing and, and the beater and, and light the gong on fire yes. and, and smash the gong, right? That was like a big thing. So at one point, Alex was wearing like a long sleeve, like polyester shirt, you know? And he's like, he's like, I remember wearing it. And I kept having to roll the sleeves up. It was driving me crazy. But when he reached back to do the gong bit, some of the, some of the flame stuff you know, whatever he was using, kerosene probably, who knows, right? Dripped onto his shirt and caught his shirt on fire a little bit. Now he didn't realize it at the time and he sat back down and started playing and then he was like, oh shit, my shirt is on fire. So he looks down at his drum tech, who I don't know who it was at the time. It was not John Douglas, who also I have a connection to. John Douglas is Alex's tech now John Douglas and I, John hired me to work at a drum shop when I was in high school. He was the manager of a drum shop in Houston, Texas. And I worked at the store, just like stocking drum heads. And John was in a band called XOX. They were like a big, they were like a big band in Houston at the time, like kind of glam metal. And John is a phenomenal drummer, by the way, uh, an incredible artist as well, and has been with Alex for many years. Anyway, so Alex realizes he's on fire, but he's playing. So he looks at his tech and he's like, I'm on fire, right? And what I remember is the tech was like doing a bong hit or something and like looked up to at him and was like, looks great, man. Like this kind of vibe, right? 
And Alex is like, ah, and like, so he, he jumps off the kit. And rather than the tech attending to Alex and like put him out, the tech jumped on, on the drum set and finished the song. Wow. <laughs> that's, funny. that's how I remember that story. That was on the 93-ish tour? He told me the story then. This, this story happened like many, many years ago. Well, every time you kept saying that he was on fire, I'm thinking of the Van Halen song, I'm on fire. <laughs> and and uh, it's kind of hard to like not laugh at that irony right there. But he was, and he was fine. He ended up being fine because the shirt was so thick and stuff. Like, it, I don't think it really like burned him. And I just think it's hilarious that the tech was like, oh shit, I better get on the kit rather than like put the fire out. Well, that leads me to another question. I'm just guessing. One of my big obsessions is the hidden offstage players in different classic metal bands. You know, Ozzy's had them. Kiss has had them. Yeah. You two, it's known they have a, a dude that's been on offstage or below the stage for 30 years. It's, yeah. It's kind of the norm with that kind of stuff. And yeah. I remember reading that Eddie Van Halen had a keyboard player on the side of the stage who I think was his guitar tech. Hmm. Now, does this mean that the people who teched for Van Halen were as good as Van Halen and could just all do the show in a second flat? I mean, some of them. I know, I know at least, I know one guy that was a guitar tech for Eddie, and I'm blanking on his name right now because he teched for Hi-Fi in the early days. And uh, he could shred every lick that Eddie ever played. Yeah, like, yes. I think a lot of times... It's funny, I think it pro I think I don't think there's a lot of in between. Because I know a lot of techs that are really great at the instrument they tech for, or they're fucking horrendous. And you're like, how are you up there like hitting the drums like that? Like you're not like, come on. You know what I mean? Like your Chad Smith is tech. I I'm just making that up. I don't even yeah. know who Chad Smith's tech is. But like you're watching a you know, phenomenal drummer every night, but then you get up there and you're like, Psh, like you can't even like make the sound, you know? So there, I think there's, I don't think there's much middle ground. I think they're either rippers or they totally suck. Was the tech for Eddie you were talking about uh, before Zeke? No, Keegan, was that his last name? I think his last name was Keegan and we called him Keegan. Oh. That's what's coming back to me right now. Cause I heard a story. Uh, do you know Steve Brown from Trickster? No, I've never met any of those guys. Oh, okay, well, there, there's some footage of him on the, I think it's the 88 tour when Van Halen was playing Madison Square Garden. And there wasn't really security barricades or anything like that. And he saw that the tech was Zeke. And he said, oh, he doesn't manhandle anybody. And he snuck on stage and just started finger tapping on Eddie's guitar. And Eddie just laughed. And then they gently took him off stage. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. I was curious if at that point in time, it was still the same guy or anything like that. So. Yeah. With, with the Dave Soto, Solo catalog, feel free to say, no, not really into it, but are you big eat and smile guy oh, or skyscraper? Oh, yeah. So, I mean, I took, I, I took drum lessons from Greg Bissonette for years. What? Yeah. Oh, yeah. I love Greg. Wow. Okay, yeah. so which era would that have been? So I started studying with Greg probably in 2006 or seven, maybe. And um, he lived, he lived, we had a mutual friend that connected us. And, and Greg is like one of those guys that like, he teaches, but like, just kind of like, 
it's kind of on the side, you know, it's not like he's like advertising, like, Hey, come take lessons with me. You know right. what I mean? Like if you, if you have an in, I think you can do it. You know what I mean? And so, uh, so yeah, I, t- I, I love, Gre- I love that record. That record like changed, changed my life to a degree because it was like, I was like, I, I, I sort of learned like what a session guy was from that album. You know what I mean? I was like, Oh, who are these guys that are playing in a band with Dave now? You know what I mean? And I, think it opened up a whole new world and I started like investigating Greg and found out like he's a like a phenomenal you know big band and jazz drummer. Greg Bissonette is one of the best drummers on the planet and he can play any style of music completely authentically. So like you know whatever you know all the stuff he's done and like he can play some super technical double bass metal you know freak out and then drop into this like New Orleans groove it sounds like Zigaboo, like exactly. You know what I mean? It's like incredible. Yeah. You I ever love hear it. the version of Panama that he played on for Pat Boone on the Pat Boone metal album? No, no. <laughs> well, that's part one. I part remember two. that record though. Oh, it's a great record. And I gotta listen to that, yeah. And if you like Edom and Smile, have you ever listened to that album in Spanish? The Spanish version, Sonrisa Salvaje? No, I know that that existed as well. I didn't listen to it. Stock questions I have to ask. Uh, yeah, yeah. A lot of the people who listen to this kind of make fun of my love of that album. But I was asking uh, Michael Sweet from Striper earlier today about like, do you plan on recording an album in Spanish? Hey, hold, hold on. You were talking with Michael Sweet earlier today? You were interview number three of four today. I'm a little bit of a, an over interviewer. I, I love Striper. Striper was like one of the shows, again, that like those, they were so good. I caught a Bible. At the show, <laughs> I remember I caught a Bible and then I brought it home and I'm like I'm, you know, I'm not a religious person, whatever. But I brought it home and I like, I had a, I had a waterbed at the time, and waterbeds had these little like cubbies, you know, at the back that yeah. you could put stuff in. So I remember like I put the Bible there with like two like striper cassettes like on top of it as a display. That was like what I had. Yeah, I don't, I don't blame you when when you go down the list of. I hate saying hair metal, but the hair metal bands that are actually re- really legit bands that you don't limp, like lump in with the others that are legit good, you could still listen to. I say you got Striper, yep. Rat, White Lion, Dokken. Yep. Yep. There, there's kind of like six of them, and Striper's agree. one of them. Totally and agree. And I'm Jewish. I don't even. <laughs> <laughs> totally agree. I love Striper. Love Robert Sweet. Great drummer. Yeah, so I was asking him if he ever had plans to record an album in Spanish, you know, based on some Risa Salvaje, and surprisingly said, oh, yeah, actually, I do. I want to do that. That's Did they ever make you record hi-fi stuff in another language? We never did, no. I, I mean, I, you know, it would have been so hard for me to do. I spoke a little French when I was a kid, so maybe I could have pulled that off. Um, but, I mean, I think it's awesome that that people can do that. I mean, that's, you know, that's incredible got it so steering things a little bit away did i read correctly that you develop apps or technology related stuff hi-fi labs hi-fi labs is a company yeah that uh that i just co-founded this year um and it's a really cool company it's something that had sort of been in the works for a couple years and um you know we were lucky enough to to fund it right at the beginning of the year and um, so it's basically a company that is 
we're focused on two things. One is like true artist development. So being able to work with musicians that, you know, major labels, um, things that major labels used to do like 30 years ago. Um, you know, now I think there's a big trend in the industry that's like, if you don't have, you know, 500,000 followers on Instagram or you're not blowing up on TikTok, then labels aren't interested, right? And um, so, so Hi-Fi Labs was created to be able to find those musicians that are making incredible music, maybe in their bedroom in Toledo, Ohio, and they have no, you know, they don't have any friends or family that are in the, in the business. And so that's, that's, what, that's why we made this, why, why we started this company was to be able to find those artists mm -hmm. and then develop them, invest in them and, you know, watch their careers, you know, uh, flourish, quite frankly. And, you know, one of the reasons I wanted to do that is, you know, I've had like eight major label record deals in my career, you know. Yeah, you're not exaggerating right there. Yeah. So, you know, and like I've seen the uh, benefits to that and the pitfalls. Mm -hmm. And so I wanted to kind of bring some of that experience into this company and give that back to some other artists. And we have an incredible team that we built out um, and are, are signing our first artist as we speak, actually. Wow, that's great. Yeah. Uh, in not giving anything away, but you're skewing towards younger artists that haven't had deals, or would you guys be open to label services kinds of things where people who survived the majors? Yep, so we are not, we're not doing any like label services so like directly, you know? We're not a management company, we're not a label, we're not an agency. We're sort of a creative think tank and a, an A&R resource, I guess. Um, and, but we do wear those hats also, you know, so we do have pro project managers and we do have people to do A&R, but mm -hmm. we also have an in-house, you know, software developer and engineer so that if, you know, we just built, um, uh, I don't know if I can say this, <laughs> I don't know if I can say, maybe I can. Anyway, we've worked with a couple of really big artists just recently and one big company recently. Um, and we literally, to your point, we built them the technology so that they can own it. And, and the artist can own that technology and own that platform. Um, so it's really cool. Yeah, it's a cool. So there's two sides to the company. There's the artist development side. And then there's the side that is like, we're just a one-stop shop creative think tank. So if you have an idea, some way that you want to try to break through the noise, we, we want to be someone that can help you, you know, facilitate that. And to be clear, that software is not David Lee Roth's visual comic book that came out three weeks ago? That is not. I wish, I wish it was. No. <laughs> there you go. So, so, so recapping everything. Yeah. The Van Halen world is not too far cut off from you because of Bob Rock and sharing some texts over the years. Van Halen was an influential band. You love Eat em and Smile. You had a good story of Alex Van Halen lighting himself on fire accidentally. Uh, <laughs> and that was the first time you'd seen Van Halen, like 1993 or so. You like Striper. You still like Rough Cut. Uh, is there any Van Halen uh, territory? And this is the last thing I'll, I'll ask, being mindful yeah. of your time here. A lot of the interviews I've done recently with, say, Desmond Child or Butch Vig, it seems like everybody was reached out to by Van Halen for some reason, like, hey, we're thinking of using outside songwriters, we're thinking of using outside musicians, et cetera. 
Was there ever a point when you were at your hottest in the mainstream sense that somebody from Van Halen nearly reached out to you? Nope, never had any contact with anyone from Van Halen. Yeah. Uh, I didn't mean to put you on the spot there, but- Oh, no, not at all, not at all. It seems I mean, like though that they reached out to, to a lot of people and it's only after Eddie passed that all these stories started coming out. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, honestly, I don't, I wouldn't have been able to add any value to anything Van Halen was doing, you know, like there, it's like, to me, it's such a perfect, I mean, and I love, I love 5150, you know, I love, I love the, the Hagar stuff too. Mm -hmm. Um, I, I just think that they're one of those bands that, yeah, like if they called me and said, hey, we want you to do something, I don't, I don't, I would be too scared to do it. (laughs) <laughs> like I don't think I wouldn't want to walk into that you know and it doesn't sound to me like there's a lot of bands that you'd feel that way about like if Kiss called you could do something right sure oh yeah 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 yes. yeah no, I'm not I'm not scared of Kiss no <laughs> I think uh but yeah yeah Van Halen I mean like I said they were just so some of the rhythms and the technical stuff they did was just so you know beyond where what my brain does naturally that I just, I just don't think I could ever add any value there. Well, uh, in the, like Howard Stern says, uh, you've said it all, you've done it all. You know, that kind of thing. Thank you, Stacy. Thank you for all, all right this on. insight and years of knowledge and pulling and great to see Hi-Fi Labs is fighting the good fight for musicians. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. I mean, pleasure, pleasure to see you, Darren. Always happy to chat.